Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to you who are at home joining us. Good to see you. Hey, uh, I understand that there are many different kinds and qualities of whiskeys. And uh, the really good aged whiskeys, I'm told, uh, have all kinds of strands of flavors in them that you have to kind of train your palate to identify. And the Apostle Paul's theology in his letter to the Galatians, a part of which we've just heard, is like a good whiskey. And like a good whiskey, we have to train our palate to identify the many different strands of flavor in Paul's theological argument in his letter to the Galatians. Now there, turns out, is a plethora of cheap whiskey out there. There is all kinds of poorly developed theology, unthoughtful biblical interpretation, or just plain old cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called it in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. But I heard N.T. Wright say this about Paul's letter to the Galatians. He said, like a good aged whiskey... We might prefer a small glass of Paul's whiskey than a gallon of the bad whiskey that is so widely available. Now, I don't really like whiskey. I've actually tasted this like $200 uh, bottle whiskey. It all just tastes like cough syrup to me. But the analogy seems like an appropriate one to me that we, a fitting one, that we have to in some ways train our palates to identify all of the complex tones and flavors in the Apostle Paul's good aged whiskey. And so that's my prayer today for us. In fact, let's pray uh, together that way. Gracious God, we do pray that you would train our minds and our hearts to identify the multiple strands of flavors in Paul's argument. Give us discerning palates. Help us to hear what you are saying. And not only hear what you're saying, but ingest it. That what you say might also become part of us. To shape us. We thank you in advance for the work that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 23 says that before faith came, we were imprisoned under the law. That we were guarded under the law. The law is all of the Old Testament all of what the Old Testament says that we must do or not do in order to be declared righteous. You could think of uh, the Ten Commandments as kind of the Cliff Notes version of the law. The law is a lot longer and a lot more complex than the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments kind of capture the main ideas of the law. 
And verse 23 says that we were imprisoned under the law. That we were guarded by the law before faith came. And until faith would be revealed. So we're told in verse 23 that the role of the law was actually always meant to be temporary. It was before faith came that we were imprisoned under the law. The law was given until faith would be revealed. So the guardianship of the law was never actually meant to be permanent. And why do you think that the law was never intended to be permanent? I think it's because the law proved to be rather unhelpful in terms of making us righteous. It proved that it just doesn't do the job, that it doesn't actually work. It doesn't make us righteous because only perfect obedience to the law could make us righteous. And who could possibly keep the law perfectly in complete obedience? Well, speaking of complete obedience, if we keep reading in verse 24, we come along these lines. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian or babysitter, as I'm going to call it in a minute. Therefore, the law was our babysitter until Christ came. Until Christ came. That is, until the faithfulness of Christ came. And when Jesus did come, he demonstrated complete obedience to the law. And so he fulfilled all of the requirements and all of the demands of the law. Now that Christ has come in perfect obedience and perfect faithfulness, the law's role is now not the same as it used to be. So what is the role of the law? Again, verse 24, therefore the law was our disciplinarian or our babysitter until Christ came. That word there that Paul uses, the apostle Paul uses is um, pedagogos. That's the word that's translated as disciplinarian or guardian or what I'm going to say as babysitter. That word pedagogos is the word for a household slave in the Greco-Roman world. A household slave who was responsible for the children. And who among many other things was responsible to get the children from home to school without getting into too much mischief. Right, so the pedagogos was not the teacher, was not the parent, but the household slave who was in charge to get the children from home to school without them getting into too much mischief. That's why a reasonable translation of this word pedagogos is just babysitter or maybe nanny. The law was like a babysitter for us, looking after us until the coming of Christ. Getting us from home to school, making sure that we don't get into too much mischief on the way. Using that term babysitter for the law is a really interesting analogy that Paul uses. Because if you think about the law as being responsible for getting us from home to their teacher... Responsible for children to get them from home to their teacher. Then who is the teacher that the law leads us to? Yeah, exactly. The greatest teacher of all. The law leads us to the teacher, capital T, Jesus, the Messiah. And once the babysitter has led the children to the teacher, then the babysitter's role is done. The babysitter's role is completed. 
I used to ride the bus every day to school in elementary school, and my bus driver, I think, was kind of my pedagogos, my babysitter, who was in many ways responsible to get me from my bus stop near my home to school, making sure that I didn't get into too much mischief. Now, my bus driver's didn't succeed very well in preventing me from getting into too much mischief of no fault of their own. Turns out I was a pretty bad bus rider. In fact, I was a terrible bus rider. Even as an elementary school kid, I landed myself in the principal's office on several occasions because of poor choices that I made on the bus. And I won't pain you with the details of those poor choices. However, my last day ever on the school bus was going to be my last day of school in the eighth grade. The following year, I was going to a Jesuit school, a private school, and so there was going to be no more public school bus. And so I had big plans for my last day riding the school bus. I used to sit near the back or in the back of the bus, and so my big grand plan was I was going to make an amazing exit. I was going to, at my bus stop, on the very last day of school, I was going to stand up and I was going to open the emergency exit door in the back of the bus and I was going to walk out. It was going to be like my mic drop at the end of eighth grade. I am out of here. But three days, three days before that, what was going to be infamous day, last day on the bus, I made another poor decision that got me, wouldn't you know, permanently kicked off the bus. So I was not able to make my plans for the last day of school in the eighth grade to come to fruition. I wasn't able even to ride the bus for the last three days of school. My parents were very happy about that. But that was okay because starting my ninth grade year, I was no longer going to be subject to riding the bus and being under the supervision of the bus driver. This is what Paul is saying here in verse 25. He's saying, you are no longer under the authority of the babysitter because you don't need a babysitter anymore. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to the babysitter. It's like now that you have your driver license, you no longer need to be escorted to school on the bus. Or to put it another way, now that you are already an adult, why would you put yourself back under the care of a babysitter? Why would you do that? Children need babysitters. Adults do not usually need babysitters. Children need to be told what to do and what not to do. Adults, ideally anyway, don't need to be told everything that they must do or must not do. And now that the faithfulness of Jesus Christ has come, Paul is telling us here that you no longer need a babysitter. Paul was telling the Galatians that now they can stand tall. They are followers of Jesus And they have nothing to gain and everything to lose if they put themselves back under the care of the babysitter, the law. Listen to what Paul says that they have gained. 
Listen to what they have already gained and that they might lose if they choose to put themselves back under the authority of the law, back under the authority of the babysitter. First, in verse 25, they've been justified. They've been put into right relatedness with God through the work of Jesus Christ, the faithful one. In other words, that great chasm that once separated us from the living God has been bridged. That great dividing wall of hostility that once separated us from God, that dividing wall has been torn down. And in Christ, you have been justified. You have been made right with God. You have already gained this through the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verse 26, they are all children of God through faith. Or better yet, they are all children of God through the faithfulness of Jesus. You are no longer a slave to the law. You are a child of God. You are no longer slaving away. You no longer need to slave away at obedience to the law in an effort to somehow earn the love of the Father. No, Jesus, Jesus has already obeyed the law for you making the pathway clear for the Father to adopt you as his own daughter and his own son, giving you all the rights and privileges and status of a child of God. And if you're a child of God, you are infinitely precious to him. Because as we've just sung, he's a good, good father. Third, in verse 27, whoever among them had been baptized into Christ has been clothed with Christ. I love this imagery. You have been clothed with Christ. They've all got Jesus' clothes on. You have all got Jesus' clothes on. There's no longer rich kids with nice clothes and poor kids with tattered clothes. You have all got Jesus' clothes on. So that, Paul says, there's no longer rich or poor. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. There's no longer slave nor free. No longer male and female. No longer Democrat and Republican, white or black. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Every single one of you because you've got Jesus' clothes on. Fourth in verse 29. They belong to Christ they belong to Christ, and as such, they are heirs according to the promise of God. They are heirs according to the promise of God. You are the apple of his eye, I think Paul is saying here. You are his precious kids, and so the Father will keep his promises to you. The very first promise of the Father comes to us at the very beginning of the book. Right at the beginning in Genesis 3 verse 15, in the wake of the first couple's disobedience. God says to the serpent, God says, although you will strike the heel of Adam and Eve, their offspring will crush your head. That's a promise. It's not just a hope, it's a promise. In other words, there will come a time when the offspring of Adam and Eve will deal a death blow to the serpent, to our enemy who is the great deceiver. Yes, he will strike at your heel, but yes, also, you will strike his head. You see, God kept that promise in Jesus. Jesus, who was stung by death on the cross and who rose from the dead, and listen to this, 
put a nail in the coffin of death. Jesus drove the final nail into the coffin of death so that the Apostle Paul would write in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? He's taunting death. Where are you? Where, O death, is your sting? Because when death stung Jesus, it stung itself to death. You see, God kept his original promise. And you and I, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and by placing our faith in his faithfulness, you and I are heirs to that promise. The second promise that God made was to Abraham, and Jericho has already talked about this promise that you and I are heirs in faith of Father Abraham. So that Abraham and Sarah, they're like our faith parents. Through faith, we are all part of God's forever family. God promised that he would make his nation as numerous as the stars. And he promised that through us, his people, that he would be a blessing to all the nations. Do you hear those blessings? Right relatedness with God, children of God, being clothed with Christ, having Jesus clothes on, that you are heirs of God's promises. The Galatian Christians, they had already been given all of this through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Why would they give all of that up? By putting themselves under the authority and supervision of a babysitter, the law. Why would they subject themselves to that? The word of God written not just to the Galatians, but to you and to me as well, presents us with the same question. Having been given right relatedness with God, having been called children of God, having been clothed with Jesus Christ, having already become heirs of God's promises, why would you give all of that up to subject yourselves to the supervision of the babysitter? In chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, the fullness of time, not just any old time, but the fullness of time, the time set beforehand by the father himself, the time when the role of the law had been completed. You see, in Greek, there are two words for time. The first word for time in Greek is chronos. Probably sounds familiar to you because it's like chronological time. It's TikTok time. So, chronological time, for example, if you were to ask me what time the Seahawks play today, you would be asking me about the chronological time, the chronos time. The answer to that question is 5.20 p.m., Sunday night football. But if you were to ask me if it were time for Russell Wilson to be named the most valuable player in the NFL, then you would be asking me a kairos time question, like the opportunity time has come for Russ to be named the MVP it's not necessarily going to happen at 5.20 tonight, but the time is ripe. That's what kairos time means. It's opportunity time. The time has arrived. And the Apostle Paul says the opportunity time has come. God has sent his son into the world. 
I can't think of Kairos time without thinking of Jesus' very first sermon. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says this. He says, the time is fulfilled. The Kairos time, the opportunity time. The time is fulfilled. What time is it, Jesus? It's time for the kingdom of God to draw near. And it's time to believe Sorry, it's time to repent and believe in the good news. It's time to repent and believe in the good news. That's what time it is. The opportunity time has come to repent and believe in the good news. You see, the problem with the Galatian Christians was that they thought it was time to repent and obey the law. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say the time has come, the kingdom of God has drawn near, so repent and start obeying the law. He doesn't say that. He says, repent and believe. Repent and have faith in me. Repent and trust me. Trust me. Krista and I were in Joshua Tree the last couple of days, and we were rock climbing. And when we climb, we communicate with one another using kind of a standard set of commands to keep one another safe. And we communicate whether it's safe or not for the other person to climb. And so, for example, um, I will ask Krista, is belay on? Or am I on belay? And she will say, yes, you are on belay. And then just in case, we use a second round of commands. And so I'll say, okay, I'm climbing. It's kind of a question like, is it okay to climb? And she'll say, climb on. Once Krista says, belay is on and climb on, she is telling me that it is Kairos time for me to climb. The opportunity has come. The time is right. You can climb and you can climb freely, unafraid of death. Because Krista has got me on belay. And I think Paul is saying, friends, you are on belay. You don't need a babysitter anymore. You are on belay. You are free to climb. Unhindered by fear. Unhindered specifically by the fear of death. And I want to close this morning by just identifying this beautiful strand of flavor in Paul's good aged whiskey. It's in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if you're a child, then you are also an heir through God. Now that the faithfulness of Jesus Christ has come, friends, you can send the babysitter home. For you are children of God, heirs to the promise Friends, believe the good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your many blessings. Specifically, we thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to give up everything so that we might gain everything. Your faithfulness to lay down your life so that we might embrace life. Your faithfulness to put us on belay so that we might be free to climb without fear, to live without fear. Jesus, we receive your promises today. Your promise of life, your promise of hopefulness, your promise of presence. 
Make us people of the promise today. We celebrate you, for it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpchb.org.